Hello, Internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your life in that order. And Andy, I'm so sorry, I didn't mention this while we were talking before we started recording, but it has been requested of me that I ask this question of you Uh right now. At the beginning, at the top of this show. What are you wearing right now? Why? Answer the question and then I'll tell you why. (laughs) Uh, At this exact moment, I am wearing a gray t-shirt and a gray pair of boxer briefs. Damn it! (laughs) Okay. Um, What on earth? Okay, so for for our lovely listeners, it's about 7.15 on a Wednesday. And I just got home from work about an hour ago and I was changing. And I pulled out my favorite pair of Batman pajama bottoms and looked over at my wife, my, my darling wife, Stephanie, who is lying infirm on the bed. And I said, you know, I don't think I'll wear the Batman pants. It seems wrong to record in them. I'll put on the jeans. And she goes, what? And I stop and I think, wait, that was a completely nonsensical thing to think. I don't know why I thought that. It's not like I'm videoing with Andy and we're standing. And even if we were, he wouldn't care that I'm in my Batman pants. And so it was a complete, like, brain lapse moment for me. Interesting. But then Stephanie says, besides, you know Andy's just going to be wearing that stupid pair of boxer, or I'm sorry, Ah. that stupid pair of basketball shorts that he always wears. And we agreed that I would ask you at the top of this recording, what you were wearing to see if you were wearing those stupid basketball shorts. And it turns out you are not. You are wearing less. <laughs> I'm offended that you find my basketball shorts stupid. I am in the comfort of my home. You think I'm going to wear fucking pants? Those were her words. Stupid basketball shorts. Not my words. Not people hurt by her. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not going to necessarily say that I disagree, but like, eh, I I can't give you too much shit. I wear jeans all the time. I literally wear the same jeans and black V-neck every single day. It is my uniform. It is my Steve Jobs mock turtleneck sweater. It is my Barack Obama brown suit. I wear the same shit every day. So I can't really comment on your basketball shorts. Well, I, maybe I'm going to have to ask her now. Now I want to know, is it the basketball shorts or is it those basketball shorts? Because I own different pairs of shorts. But if you think I'm going to wear jeans in my home, oh. <laughs> oh, no, no. Oh, lesson learned. I mean... <laughs> I will, I will always say this. When I think of people who wear basketball shorts, who wear basketball outfits for comfort or athletic clothing for comfort, I always think back. This was maybe about 10 or 10-ish years ago. Uh, I saw Killswitch Engaged in concert and all of them were dressed in like rock star outfits, which is to say they were wearing a lot of like denim and leather and t-shirts, yeah. except for their lead guitarist who was wearing basketball shorts, a basketball jersey, sneakers, and a sweatband. And he's this tall, lanky-ass white dude. And he's running all over the stage playing, like, great guitar, great solos, but he's dressed like he's an extra in Hoosiers. And the whole time I'm sitting here just going like, okay, you're obviously the most comfortable person here because everyone else i mean don't get me wrong jeans and t-shirts are pretty comfy 
some of them are like wearing, I don't know, like leather jackets or something, but you are the most comfortable person here and you are running around more than literally anyone else. But I just found it fascinating that this dude did not give a shit that he was the lead guitarist of like one of the premier metal acts of that period of time. He's like, nah, I'm going to go out there wearing a basketball jersey and little shorts, despite the fact that I'm like six foot eight and a toothpick with a guitar. <laughs> and I respected this. I respect But that. I always have that mental image. I, I always have that mental image. Sure. I mean, I would I would say that's not a place to wear that. You're you're jumping around. You better have your your drawstring tightened, but eh? I, I think more people were concerned with the mosh pit than with his testicles. Sure. Which is not a sentence I get to say very often. So you gotta savor it. <laughs> I mean you know how it is. I might have been wearing my basketball shorts were I not feverishly running around to uh, get set up and wolf down a sandwich at the same time uh, to the point where we, we LHR has, has claimed its first wound of, of its tenure. I cut mm. my finger open on, on a, a glass I picked up in the wrong way and it snapped and it's not a big cut but it is a deep cut so i can now say i've i've given my blood sweat and tears for this show <laughs> i mean wait how how have you sweat for this show by recording in my closet for like episodes two and three because i wanted to see how it would sound if i went into my non-ac'd closet and sat in there for an hour that sounds clammy. Yeah, I stopped doing it. <laughs> I just figured out how to take out the audio better. Okay, so where you're wearing your basketball shorts and dealing with needing to tighten your drawstring there? Like, tell me about your balls, Andy. Tell me about your balls. You have a better understanding of my balls than most. So, I don't think... You're one of, you're one of the people I need to describe them in further detail to the least. I mean, how, how, how can I put this? Um, anyone there who's ever seen the presidential portrait of Franklin Pierce? <laughs> Andy's balls. There you go. That's that's how I remember Franklin Pierce, is just Andy's balls. I can't name you a single thing Franklin, Franklin oh, Pierce ever not, did. I don't know shit about nearly, his presidency. He's not nearly as old and or bad looking as, as, I, was lit, as I thought. Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> What are you comparing him to, James Garfield? Let's be fair. James Garfield looked like a thumb that was sharpied on. (laughs) Now that Benjamin Harrison, though, like, Benjamin Harrison could get it. How many other obscure presidents can I just There's always a Martin Van Buren fan, those sideburns. Oh, Martin Van Buren. See, the thing I always remember about Martin Van Buren was the Wild Thornberries episode where Eliza was supposed to write a book report about him and she kept calling him Martin Van Halen. (laughs) Which was a joke that sailed over the head of everyone I knew who watched that show except for me. Because I was like, "I I know who Van Halen is! Naturally. Yeah, because that was me as a child. I brought my pencil! Yeah. Terrible. Little headbanger. Oh. Well, like you knew me back then. You've made me laugh in this little mare and open we've had. 
And I think that's <laughs> remarkably fitting for today's episode. Nice segue. I like it. Take pride in them. Yeah. Okay. So let's, you want to get into it? Yeah. All right. Sounds good. So um, just to go over the format, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you're about 10 minutes into this episode. This is Love-Hate Relationship. Our format is very simple. We have three segments. Uh, On the first segment, one of us will bring to the table uh, a subject that we love dearly, uh, that we want to go into detail about, talk about, tell you why we love it and why it enriches our lives and hopefully could enrich yours. Then we, uh, the other person goes into a hate topic, something that we loathe, that we think is awful, that if it were eradicated from existence... Uh, we would be so much the better world for it. And then we take a question from you, dear listeners, dear lovely audience, uh, about a relationship situation that you've got. And we try and give you the best advice that our tremendously unqualified, and we cannot stress this enough, unqualified asses can come up with. That's right. So, Andy, I think it's my turn for the love. Yes, it is, my man. And what do you love today? And today, I want to talk about a TV show. Uh, It's been a bit since uh, I brought up a TV show. The last one I brought up was uh, BoJack Horseman, uh, talking about that particular Netflix animated show. The show that I have for you today is, uh, instead of being a Netflix animated show, is a live-action period comedy drama show on Amazon Prime. I am talking about Amy Sherman Palladino's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Yay. I love that reaction. So, Andy, uh, this is the most straightforward opener I've had for you in a minute. Uh, so, tell me. I talk. I mentioned The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. You have that reaction. What have you seen of it, and what do you think of it? Uh, I have seen the first season and the first episode of season two, and it is it is a delightful capital C comedy in a way that most comedies today are not. It's not a sitcom. It's not a half hour like format. It's not an adult animated show. It's it's it, i understand why you classify it as a comedy drama but it, it is very much a comedy it is hilarious hilariously funny amazingly well done in the cast and the acting and the technical execution and the writing it is a incredible hit and i sat on this show for a good couple of months because you had first mentioned it, I think way back in our episode one, when you talked about Lenny Bruce, you gushed about this show and I went, Oh, okay. That must be nice. And then didn't do anything about it for like six months until I threw on episode one. Cause I was thinking about you on a whim and fell in love, had to like stop after episode three so I could wait for my wife to get home because we just had to watch this show together. I love the show. I love mm. the show so much. This is a a very much double love. Fantastic. I, I'd forgotten that I mentioned it on our first episode. That was that was the episode where you mentioned Sam Kinison, That's of right. course. Uh, and and we brought up this show. We'll get into the stand-up of it. But heads up, everybody. Mm, I, I'm going to try and avoid spoilers uh or at least any large-scale spoilers especially because you andy haven't seen season two there are currently two seasons of the show out 
But um, just in case uh, you are desperately adverse to any potential spoilers, you can feel free to go ahead and skip ahead to our hate segment. Andy, you drop in uh, where they can listen to that right now. Okay, that is 3856, and I did that because I want to and not because Alex told me. And okay, brief summary of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Uh, It is a period dramedy series, uh, I did steal that from Wikipedia, I'm pretty sure, uh, that debuted on Amazon Video in 2017. It was created by Amy Sherman Palladino, uh, best known as the creator of Gilmore Girls, and the regular cast includes uh, Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Borstein, Tony Shalhoub, Marin Hinkle, and Michael Zegan, with regular appearances from Kevin Pollack, Luke Kirby, and Jane Lynch. The elevator pitch for the show. And this isn't too spoilery. It basically spoils stuff that happens in episode one. Centers on Midge Maisel, played by Brosnahan, who is a 1958 mother and housewife whose life is completely turned out when her husband, Joel, played by Zegan, who moonlights from his corporate day job as a stand-up comic, he leaves Midge and their family to pursue an affair with his secretary and ostensibly his show business dreams. In reaction, Midge snaps and drunkenly storms on the stage of the club where Joel typically performs and delivers an impromptu, incredible set that inspires her to pursue her own career in stand-up with the help of her new manager, Susie, who is played by Alex Borstein. Tony Shalhoub and Maureen Hinkle play her parents, and it is wonderful. Like, I... Wonderful is a good word that, for it. Yeah, no, like, I worry the elevator pitch sounds kind of, I don't know, cutesy, but this show is so freaking well-written. Like, first of all, it's filthy. I'm going to get that out of the way. Like, yes, show, in the, show that takes place in the late 50s, early 60s, in, you know, prim, proper, high society New York. This show is fucking filthy, you guys. <laughs> it is, it is, it, it like... The language is horrific. Mom, I don't recommend it. Uh, the there's there's a couple of tit scenes in that first episode. Like there's it it it's not something that would be shown on say uh, the WB where Sherman Palladino's original show Gilmore Girls would have been set uh, or was set. But apart from that, the first thing I want to kind of talk about bringing in this show is the character work in it. Like I I know I just gave. You guys, like, a big list of actors, some of whom you might not be familiar with. I was not familiar with a number of these actors before watching this show. But every single character throughout this show, whether that's Midge and Susie, whether that's Midge and Joel, whether that's Susie and her parents in in the later season, whether that's Midge and Luke Kirby's character, which is Lenny Bruce, which I'll get into. Like, Luke Kirby plays actual Lenny Bruce. All of these character interactions are so well-conceived, and every single character gets their own kind of fantastic moment to shine. Yeah. Andy, you saw season one. Do any of those particularly stand out for you? Um, I mean, a lot of them do. The writing is absolutely bulletproof, and I think you're, the way you're classifying it, everybody gets a moment to shine. That's That's really true, and... Like what I think more than anything is I I was unfamiliar with most of the cast, but even the cast I was familiar with, Alex Borstein, Tony Shalhoub, like 
what this show has done is given its actors a chance to like capital A act and break out of maybe typecasting because specifically like mm. I, you, you say Tony Shalhoub anyone thinks of the show Monk and I hate Monk I think Monk is dumb <laughs> But okay. I love Tony Shalhoub as Midge's father. He mm-hmm. he is nuanced. He is is complex, and he's funny in a way that Monk, uh, OCD having super detective, never was to me. Uh, you look at Alex Borstein, yeah. who is most famous for being the voice of Lois Griffin on Family Guy, and mm-hmm. she does a phenomenal job i had to pause at at one moment and like look up did alex borstein win an oscar because i'm sitting there muttering to myself okay she better have won a goddamn oscar for this and she did and she earned it you know they don't give the oscars for uh, TV uh, shows, right? uh, i meant emmy that's a bad that's a bad <laughs> flub on my part <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, you're the film guy, dude. No, I'm I'm ashamed now. I, I blame the blood loss. Uh, an Emmy? Yeah, no, you're good. <laughs> yes, and uh, I meant an Emmy there. You know, I I didn't. I've never seen Rachel Brosnahan in anything. I think she was in Mad Men, and like the only thing I've seen Kevin Pollock in, for example, was The Usual Suspects. You know what happens if you do another turn in the joint? Fuck your father in the shower and then have a snack. You're gonna charge me, dickhead. And he's mm. he's great and he's different. Like I can remember texting your wife, and we're both being like, "Okay, who's your favorite of the parents?" Oh, my favorite's Moisha. Yeah, I can see your favorite being Moisha. My favorite is Midge's mom. Yeah, I can see that. This yeah, this, the, the the characters make the show, and they all have something really. They all have at least one thing, one moment, especially in the first season, where you can kind of hang your hat on their identity. You mentioned Kevin Pollock's character, Moisha. He plays Joel's yeah. father. So Midge's father-in-law. And my, f- and again, this is slight spoiler, but like one of my favorite moments in season one is that there's going to be this dinner with Midge and Joel and with Midge's parents and with Joel's parents. And Abe, Tony Shalhoub's character, Midge's father, is complaining that he can't stand being around Moisha. Because every time he's around Moisha, Moisha is a boisterous, loud, braggadocious, miserly asshole who always tells the (laughs) same story about how he paid to get like six people out of Germany before the Holocaust hit. And he gave them jobs in his fabric factory. I tell you guys that story and you might be like, that sounds incredibly sympathetic and deep and potent. And you're right, but... The way Tony Shalhoub sells this is my daughter has been married to this young man for, I think by that point, it's like three or four, maybe five years. And he's like, every time I have sat down with this, with this man, he has told this story at least twice that evening and sometimes more. And I am so tired of hearing him tell this story. And that is such a human moment for extended family, like that one relative who constantly tells this story. And then what does Kevin Pollack do when you see him? He tells that story like it's something that clearly always works for him because how could it not work for him? He's a New York Jew in 1958 
who saved people from the Holocaust. So he did an incredible thing, and he has never stopped being an asshole about it. I would watch an entire show of just Abe and Moisha needing to deal with one another. <laughs> but they are they are a portion a, with a few scenes together in this in these couple of episodes, and they sell it so beautifully. Because Kevin Pollack and Tony Shalhoub are both master actors. They take these two moments and you can tell there is years of annoyance and resentment here. And that continues in season two. They have more scenes together, which expand on this even more. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think no lie, we could tell a story of a brilliant moment from... Like almost every character, every named character in this show, we we honestly could. I've got a completely different uh, character moment from Moisha that I'm not going to go into for time, and also because like like this gets a double thumbs up recommendation. You cannot sleep on this show if you have. If filthy language and a little bit of full frontal nudity isn't your thing, then by all means skip it. But if you were like me and you're just like, oh, okay, it's an Amazon show. Oh, okay it's won some emmys good for it i guess okay whatever like like stop go watch it tonight you will thank us the show is phenomenal and like if we're we're talking about acting we're talking about character stuff you you, we got to talk about rachel brosnahan at least a little bit because she owns this show absolutely like this is i like you was not terribly familiar with her previously and i watched this show and Kind of the center point around the first season is Midge is very much a character who has always had a plan for her life. And she executes that plan. And that plan goes well for her. Midge, like, knew she was going to go to college. And she goes to, she studies, like, fucking Russian literature and they make they make regular jokes about like why did you study russian literature what is russian literature for you but she went specifically so that she could find the kind of husband who she felt would be yeah. best for her like she did technically go for an mrs degree but she also was very meticulous about it and she legitimately loves joel and feels like they have a fantastic relationship but also she like it's it's shown at the beginning that she is still the same size she's the same measurement she was on her wedding day because she meticulously tracks her eating and her exercise so that she can maintain that and she measures herself every single day this is the kind of person she is they show this early on so then when all of this shit happens with Joel when it turns out that Joel has been having an affair with his secretary and decides that he has given up on his dreams too early and leaves Midge so that he can both be with Penny and be a stand-up, and her plan is destroyed, she snaps. And and I, I'm going to get into this a little bit towards the end of this segment. Um, I actually have never been a fan of that whole snapping thing, but at least in this pilot episode and where it happens later, it yeah. makes sense. And Midge continues, like, the overarching plot of the first season is Midge being a character who has meticulously planned everything and learns to embrace 
and take on the randomness and the chaos that life can throw at you. And it's gorgeously done. Every moment throughout this showcases that. Yeah, I mean, she's she is such a phenomenal actress and she's playing such a phenomenal character who is like as smart as she is sexy as she is a good housekeeper as she is just fun like like midge mazel has it all and is all and and just like does not seem to have any sort of flaw and like 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 she's she's rachel brosnahan does a phenomenal job she she has won multiple awards already the show is two years old and i'm pretty sure she's walked away with two best actress emmys like i had another point and i lost it but she is just phenomenal well well i'm gonna use this to go on to my second point of what i really adore about this show which is this is a i love stand-up Andy, I know you love stand-up. Like, to us, stand-up is, it's an art form. It's an art form that neither of us practice. As far as I know, you don't, you've never done stand-up, right? Okay, I've hung out with a lot of stand-ups, but I've never really done it myself, uh, despite considering it a few times, but I just know that I don't have what it takes for it. This is a, and there's been plenty of shows, sitcoms or TV shows that talk about stand-up, that focus on stand-up, that have stand-up in there. Seinfeld uh, comes to mind. Louie comes to mind. That god-awful John Mulaney show comes to mind. I'm not going to complain about being single anymore because I have found a solution. What if we just heard a gunshot right now? I know Greg Giraldo had a pilot for a show where I think he was a stand-up back in the 90s, but none of those shows really seem to treat stand-up like what it really is. Like the grinding, the difficult art form. And in the first season, and and this, you see the fruits of this in the second season, but the first season is very much about once Midge decides she's going to pursue stand-up, it's her mixing her planning style, her herself, with the realities of the form. The first time she bombs, she says to Susie, well, I'm, I'm not supposed to do that. That's not supposed to happen to me. Bob Hope never bombs. And Susie has to explain... Everyone has bombed. Bob Hope has bombed. Bob Hope has bombed so many times that he now knows how not to bomb. That doesn't change the fact that Bob Hope has bombed. Bombing is part of this. And Midge just doesn't understand that bombing is something that can happen. That hecklers are something that can happen. And you see her learn these really shit lessons about this art form. And it treats it seriously. Which I really, really appreciate. Yeah, the thing I think of... You know, you you mentioned a couple of different shows, Seinfeld, Louis Mulaney, and they all have a couple of things in common. For one, they are all half-hour sitcoms. Louis kind of goes for being an anti-sitcom, but it's still a sitcom. Sure. And they aren't about stand-up comedy as much as they star stand-up comedians. And that's the other thing they have in common. All of these shows were people that started in stand-up, broke through into television, and so they're more interested in playing around with the medium of television. And I think that's why... Uh, you're absolutely right. They don't focus on stand-up comedy in the same way as this show, which, as as best I can tell, has no 
major stand-up comedians but like like amy sherman paladino is not a stand-up comedian she's a showrunner no she is the daughter of a stand-up comedian i did not know that okay yes yes her father was daniel sherman i think that was his name dan sherman he was a comedian from the 70s uh but yeah she so she grew up around stand that explains a lot that like because this show is about stand-up comedy as much as it's about the misadventures of Maisel. It is also about stand-up and the way stand-up happens and the nuances of stand-up. Like you talk about, it is very much an art form, and it's yeah. good. It's it's fucking laugh out loud, hold your belly, laugh good. Yeah, and that's it's funny because um, so a graduate school professor of mine, she and I are Facebook friends. And I read her, she, she gave her thoughts about the show just on a Facebook post. And, you know, she, this is, this is an individual who reviews books in the New York Times on a regular basis. Like she is, she is a serious critic and she was not really a fan of the show. And one thing that she stated outright was she did not find the standup funny. She, she thought the standup segments were not funny at all. And, and I didn't want to get into it with her, but I was like, I could not disagree more with you. Like, I think the stand-up is so well done. So clearly, carefully done. So much so that, like, in the plot line, it is regularly shown that Midge is riffing a lot. She's improvising a lot of material. And later on, it she starts, you know, developing bits and recurring bits and is definitely honing honing the craft. It's It's clear that she's learning this process throughout. But early on, you're like, it is so hard to tell what is supposed to be off the cuff for Midge and what is not. And it's funny because some of the things sound decently, sound like decently raw stand-up bits. But a lot of it is so well polished. Like, it's clear how this laughs. Part of that is Brosnahan selling it. But it's just good stand-up overall. Like, it's even the worst of it is solidly done. Yeah, and something else I really like is... The, the show figures out ways to get Midge to do stand-up that aren't her on the stage in a club doing stand-up. The first scene of the show, she's doing stand-up. It just happens to be presented in the form of she's giving a speech at her wedding. But, you know, you listen to the story. She's trying to make people laugh. She's trying to be anecdotal. Like, she's she's doing stand-up comedy. So the show doesn't wind up in a trap where they have to figure out how to end each episode with Midge at the club. They're able to expand and still get her to be doing the stand-up comedy in different and plausible environments. Yeah. And it feels organic, especially because even in just her regular interactions with other people, she comes off as a genuinely funny person. Yeah. Like, she has lines that would make anyone just crack up in regular conversation. And it's it's just done so tightly. It's such a tightly done show. Absolutely. And obviously, and obviously I'd be remiss if I talked about the stand-up and I don't mention, once again, Luke Kirby portrays actual lenny fucking bruce (laughs) in this show and every time lenny bruce lenny bruce's introduction into this show (laughs) is he ends up uh after midge uh drunkenly has her thing where she storms the club that joel frequents and does this set she ends up going topless 
and she gets arrested for indecency. And anyone who's a fan of Lenny Bruce understands that the first time Midge meets Lenny Bruce, he is also arrested for indecency. (laughs) And they meet in jail. And he is just, he just pops up throughout this show, kind of that he doesn't really mentor her, but he gives her some advice here and there. And he has a brilliant, like, mini monologue towards the beginning of the second episode where, like, Midge is clearly thinking about pursuing stand-up and she asks Mm -hmm. Lenny Bruce if it's worth it. And Luke Kirby sells this so beautifully because, and, and I love Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce is this beautiful, tragic figure of free speech politics and comedy and art. And Luke Kirby looks at her and he gives this monologue where he basically says, like, if there's, you can YouTube this, but he basically tells her that if there were anything else he could do in the world, anything at all. And he literally says, dry cleaners for the clan. Like, he would, if there was anything else he could do for a living, he would, because it's such a miserable, terrible profession. It's awful, and it crushes your soul, and it leaves you broken. And he starts to walk away, and she asks him again, like, do you love it? And he looks at her, and he gives her this beautiful shrug that just says, yes, I don't want to, but yes. And it's not words. It's pure gesture, and it's perfect it is a perfect scene if you watch nothing else watch those first two episodes just to get to that scene it's so beautiful and the fact that they brought lenny bruce to all of the people who were just watching amazon video going oh hey the gilmore girls chick wrote a new show let me watch this it's got the monk guy and they get to see some aspect of lenny bruce like this Stephanie didn't know who Lenny Bruce was before this show. Not really. She wasn't familiar with him. And so if this show just fucking introduced an entire generation of one of my heroes. Sure. And I was going to say, yeah, I mean, we're reaching the point where, where what? Lenny, Lenny Bruce reached his, his heyday nearly 60 years ago. So he has become a tragically forgotten figure as much as he was a tragically beautiful figure. So I definitely think it, it, it's a wonderful thing that the show is is highlighting one of the founding fathers of modern day comedy, pretty much. I also like I love that scene. That's an amazing scene, and I'm I'm glad you're telling people to watch that scene because it'll get to my favorite thing, which is his wife comes to pick him up from the police station. And he's like, where have you been? And she's like, I went to the Manhattan station. Well, why'd you go there? Cause you like that one better. Jesus, baby, you don't get to pick. <laughs> oh God. That That's is, the comedy that is of the such show. A good... <laughs> like that's it. Yes, absolutely. 100%. So, and, and that's the kind of thing, like I've watched, I've, I've watched all the Lenny Bruce specials. I've listened to all his albums I've, and a bunch of his interviews. That's exactly the kind of joke he would tell. That's exactly the kind of line he would say. And it's so well he's, done. He's phenomenal. He truly is. So um, just to wrap this up, uh, the one I, I do want to mention, I have one major criticism of this show, and I touched on it earlier, um, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. But it also kind of complements the show. When I say this, I'm also a Gilmore Girls fan. I've been watching the show. I'm I've got like maybe a season and a half left and then there's the revival and then I've watched the whole thing. And this is a criticism I have in Gilmore Girls as well, which is a lot of Amy Sherman Palladino shows seem to have a thing where a major way to advance the plot 
is you have characters put in an emotionally trying situation, usually women, though not always, and then they snap, they go off on someone, usually verbally, though not always, and then afterwards they're like, I don't know why I did that. Oh no, I have to face consequences because I snapped and <laughs> called someone a bunch of names and was horrible to them. And that is, and I watched the first episode of Marvelous Miss Maisel and it literally ends with that. And at this point, I had watched, like, the first, I think, two seasons, three seasons of Gilmore Girls, and I was like, okay, I see that Amy Sherman Palladino still has her writer's tick <laughs> of having having characters do this. But the thing is, with Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, this does happen. It happens more than once in that season. Not as often as it does in early Gilmore Girls. And admittedly, Gilmore Girls does that less in later seasons, but... And it happens a lot less in season two of Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. But season one, episode one, the one I'm going to ask all of you to watch, uh, if you have access to Amazon or if someone can loan you access, is they go, they spend almost an hour justifying why Midge would have that snap, why she would break that way. So I don't know if Amy Sherman Palladino finally got enough notes about how this is a problem or if she just understood it, or if she just wrote it, she's just a better writer than she used to be. But she took this tick she has, this almost staple of her writing, and made it work for the beginning of this show in a way that I gave it a pass. And I'm not well known for giving passes, especially to writers of shows, because I'm highly critical of writing it's one of the things I love about shows, but it's also one of the first things that I'm going to point out if it doesn't work. And she did it right on this one. So for nothing else, this curmudgeonly asshole, this <laughs> Susie Meyerson of a human being, in all of your ears right now, is telling you, I have one major criticism of this showrunner and of this show, and this show manages to undercut that problem in the best way possible. Check this show out please. I love it. Andy, you clearly love it. I can't wait for you to finish the sure. show. But, yeah. So, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, ringing endorsement from Love-Hate Relationship. I adore this show. Please watch it. You are a Susie Meyerson, aren't you? You know? I kind of am. I'm even, I'm even short and kind of bulky-sized. I don't wear overalls that often. Well, I hope you get your Emmy, my friend. <laughs> yeah, and I quit smoking. Like Susie smokes all the time. I quit smoking. So that, that ties me into the last thing I was going to say. Somebody whose opinion on film and television I very greatly respect um, was talking about this show and was saying, you know, I just watched Mad Men and I can't live in in fifties New York anymore. And that is a, a criticism I've seen more and more and more. That it's just like. I, I can't be in this space. And anybody who is thinking that, like, I haven't seen a second of Mad Men. I don't really plan to. But I can tell you this show has something to say with itself. And just just the only thing, the only reason to not see this is if you are very much against, like, coarse language. Other than that, like... I didn't mean to steal your thunder. You you gave a phenomenal closer, and I just I repeat everything. <laughs> but no, you're good. Yeah, this show's amazing. You're good. 
And there we are. Ringing endorsements all around. You ready to move yeah. on, my friend? All right. This one is all yours. Although I think it's going to be an interesting one it, for it sure. It certainly will be. You know, and and you, you've read the title. You know I'm talking about auto repairs. But it doesn't get a ringing endorsement from me. Um, earlier this week, or, or maybe it was over the weekend, I took my car in for an oil change and a tire rotation. And uh, it just so happened that I also had a safety recall for one of my airbags. So I took it to, uh, I drive a Honda Civic, so I took it to the Honda Center and asked for an oil change and a tire rotation. And they came back to me with two grand in recommended repairs. And to itemize the receipt, it was like a, a, a new right engine mount, replacing my spark plugs, replacing a drive belt. On top of that, like I need a transmission change. And I've already known this for a while, but my brake fluid needs to be replaced. And this has happened a situation like this has happened to me so frequently that I almost did this hate like six months ago the last time i went in for car work and got hit with a yeah so it's gonna be uh blah 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 for blah 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 and i just look the guy in the eye and say okay we're not gonna do that today i hate car repairs i think a lot of people hate car repairs it is a it is a factor in almost anybody's life that this thing that is probably essential to your livelihood and just is is a is a cornerstone of your life your vehicle usually needs constant repair usually needs constant upkeep and if you're not fabulously well off costs a lot to do that upkeep okay this is a business this is not a charity no i mean maybe one day unicef will get into the impound business but you know until then we're the people to see. And the only other way to get around paying usually an arm and a leg for your auto repairs is if you happen to be somebody who knows how to at least mostly fix a car. And sure. I don't. And I'm not trying to say mm. poor me or anything. But, like, I know for a fact that I'm not the only person who doesn't really know much about anything about fixing a car. You know, mm -hmm. I there's there's this thought in the world that being a mechanic has the secondary benefit of, you know, how to at least do some of this stuff. And I think that's absolutely true. But, like, let, let me just ask you this. Alex, has your dad ever shown you anything about car repair? Uh, a number of things. Yes. Okay. So to, to put it briefly, I, and I don't know if this is because my dad has, you know, uh, that in another context and economic strata and ethnic identity, my dad would be a survivor prepper. Uh, <laughs> but my, my dad was very insistent that you depend on other people as little as humanly possible. And that was very important in as many avenues as possible. And my dad happened to be the kind of guy who every single car my father has ever owned until like just a few years ago when all of this became readily available online. My dad, if he would buy a new car, 
or get a new car, he would immediately then go to AutoZone or Discount Auto Parts or wherever and buy the maintenance book. Because they used to publish a maintenance book for every single year, make, and model of car. My dad would buy it and he would have it sitting in the garage so that if anything happened with this car, he could look it up. And he was insistent that I, as his child, know how to change oil, how to change tires, how to change brake pads, um, how to do uh, basic flushes, how to change belts, how to do a tune-up, how to change filters, light bulbs, spark plugs, anything that you could reasonably do with a ratchet set and your and a garage. My dad wanted to make sure that I had at least a basic understanding of how to do all of these things. Uh, now there there were things that he couldn't do, and he was and when those things would happen, he would take it into a mechanic and go through the rigmarole. But my dad was insistent that anything basic, anything easy, anything that could be done. By him, or by him with me standing to his side handing him shit, or crawling under things because I was smaller, uh, or what have you, uh, they were going to be done at home. Because he was not, he, he, he considered mechanics scam artists, <laughs> uh, which I think is something y'all have in common. But yeah, basically, if, if he had the equipment to do it and the ability, he would spend a weekend working on the car to avoid, you know, the thousand dollar plus mechanics bill for whatever particular issue was going on well i think that's great and he imparted that on me i think that's absolutely great i'm I'm happy for you to have those skills i absolutely do not you know my dad taught me how to restart a car battery i kind of taught i i figured out how to change a tire and how to like replace a blown rear light bulb because that stuff is is pretty darn simple. But other than mm-hmm. that, I I really had I didn't have those Saturdays working over a car. My dad just was the kind of guy where those sorts of things go to a professional repair person. And I'm not trying to throw any crap on my dad. Dad, I don't think you're listening, but if you are, I'm not trying to. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I I'm not trying to throw anything at my dad. He 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 taught me a lot of other things. I we we both I went through the Boy Scouts with him being one of the troop leaders. My dad is there and has taught me stuff, but it just so happens that auto repair isn't one of them. And I don't think that car mechanics are scammers inherently. I can very much appreciate you have a skill that I totally don't. And, and like I said, cars are an essential part of everyday life. I mean, yes, you can get by without them, especially if you happen to live in a med- major metropolitan area that has a, a train or subway system or bus system worth a damn. Living in Orlando, I don't, and I don't know how to flush my own transmission, so... Mm. Here I am with all of these car bills and the creeping dread that, like, I can pay for none of these, but sooner or later, my car is going to break, and I'm Mm -hmm. not going to have, I I highly doubt I'm going to have the money then either. 
So I'm kind of stuck. Yeah. And, and a lot of people are also stuck. And I hate it for me and I hate it for them as well. Yeah. You know, I, I, I've been seeing a lot of memes on Facebook and such lately about millennials are taking classes on cooking. And, and people are trying to pose this as a joke of what's wrong with you? Don't you know how to cook? And people are responding back with no, because you canceled home ec. And I find this a very similar situation. This is a, a knowledge base that I think used to be a lot more widespread and then it wasn't. And since it wasn't for the generation above me, or or at least in my specific case, the generation above me, my generation is here left not knowing what to do. I'm going to ask you uh, a question, Andy, that may come off as insensitive, but I'm still going to ask sure. it of you. When you were growing up, or, or even even after you were a kid, maybe when you were an adolescent, a teenager... Were you ever aware of or uh, aware after the fact of any period of time where your family, and I don't mean your parents in their like pre-having kids or pre-getting married history. I mean your family, you, your siblings, and your parents were hard up for money. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Hard up enough that bills turned into notices. You know, I don't know. Okay, how about this? Hard up enough that meals got skipped. No, and I, I do see where you're going with this, or at least I think I do. Well, okay, so I ask you that question, and that is a very rude question to ask. Everyone out there, don't ask those questions in polite society. But this isn't polite society, it's our podcast, so meh. Uh, I ask this, and, and you know what? When I was growing up, I know my parents didn't have a ton of money, but... I, as a child, didn't feel that too deeply. I, I mentioned the thing about looking back as an adolescent and noticing stuff uh, very particularly because that was my experience. I never missed a meal. I got my suspicions about my parents, but I never missed a meal. So I mentioned this because I think a chunk of this with your dad, and maybe this is, comes down to a little bit about his upbringing. I don't know how Don grew up at all, but... Maybe that gap in knowledge comes down to a gap in experience. You know, my dad told me a story the last time I was in Orlando. I was talking to him about car maintenance because it's a regular topic for us because my dad knows that I take care of both my mine and Stephanie's cars. So he checks in with me about this. My dad told me a story about how in the little tiny village in the mountains of Columbia where he grew up, there was a mechanic there. And this mechanic's skill was not the fact that he knew how to change oil and change brakes. Anybody could do that. And people did that for themselves. This mechanic's skill was the fact that you could come to him with a 1968 Chevy and a broken, I don't know, a broken water pump on that. And you're not getting a new part for that. You're just not. Not a factory part. He's not going to call Chevy and order a part to come into rural Santa Rosa de Cabal, Colombia. This guy would say, oh, okay, you have a 68 Chevy with a broken water pump. I've got a 1958 Oldsmobile where if I jerry-rig seven parts on it using a soldering iron, it'll work. 
And that was this dude's skill. That is a level of mechanic that my father will never be. I've used a soldering iron more than my dad has. But my dad has what he learned, which was how to change your oil, how to change your tires, how to flush your transmission, how to change your spark plugs. Funny enough, most of the things you just told me that that mechanic gave you are things that I could do with your car for maybe 300 bucks worth of parts and fluids, three, 400 bucks worth of parts and fluids, and a few hours, probably. Because those are the skills my dad had. My dad grew up in a very poor, very rural area, and those were the skills he acquired. You talk about your dad's experience being he took things to a mechanic. So that was your experience. But I don't think you, Andrew Richard, at 27, have the resources your dad had when you were coming up at the age where you would supposedly be learning these things. Yeah. Am I wrong? Uh, Well, I know for a fact that while... My grandfather never left. He wasn't exactly present. So you you have unknowingly hit a little bit of something I honestly didn't think about speaking to this lack of experience. My grandfather was a mechanic for United Airlines. So the knowledge was definitely there. We're United Airlines. You do what we say when we say and there won't be a problem Capiche? it just was not necessarily passed down and it's funny i actually i i have a contemporary similar person as your father's village's mechanic uh, and that is an audio guy i know who is on the wrong side of 65 and will routinely uh, go to the uh, the dump and the like abandoned car lot and kind of scavenge for parts that he needs to fix his or his buddy's cars. You know, thinking about it and, and talking through it, sometimes that's all you need to really solve or at least come up with solutions for a problem. And I'm not necessarily trying to come up with solutions for a problem because... I'm not as selfish as to just say that I hate my lack of knowledge when it comes to car repairs. I I hate the general concept of a lack of knowledge in car repairs. But, you know, there's there's really nothing stopping me if I really wanted to, to, to start learning and to try and find, uh, see if they still make maintenance manuals and that sort of thing. And and teach myself this skill and gain this knowledge. I'm not too old for that yet. yeah. Uh, but, I mean, here, the other side of it, also, it, you're right. These are not skills that are taught in schools. Arguably, they might be skills that could be taught at home, but I don't know. I My best friend, Nick. Yeah. Who you know. You know Nick well. Uh, Nick works on cars for fun. Still does, you know? yeah. Nick's, Nick, Nick, Nick and his dad inherited his grandfather's Model A, and Nick's hobby right now is restoring the thing. Nick bought a Ford Ranger, and he told me, he said these words to me. He said, you know why I bought a Ford? I bought a Ford because I like working on my car. Hmm. And Fords, like, and, and I drive a Toyota Corolla, which I think is closer to your Honda Civic. If you've ever looked under the hood of a Corolla, everything is tightly jammed in there. Yeah. Because it's supposed to be taken apart by a machine to fix. 
a Ford, Nick's Ford Ranger, has nothing but space for you to work on it. And it breaks, enough stuff breaks and needs repairs on it that it regularly needs that maintenance. And it's made so that he can do that maintenance at home. He bought this car because he likes to work on his car. My brother-in-law, Stephen, cars are a thing for him. Like, he, he races cars, he works on cars for friends, he's got a car group, like... A group of people who talk to each other on Facebook and meet up and show off their cars, which to me sounds psychotic, (laughs) but then again, I mean, I used to dress up in costumes and perform plays, so I'm sure that sounds like lunacy to other people. So, yeah. yeah. So, are the resources there for you to learn this stuff? Yes. I'm of the opinion that there's a baseline amount of knowledge that is useful. But I can't change a transmission, Andrew. And I wouldn't... and, And honestly, even if I could, even if I had the knowledge to do it, and maybe even if I had the equipment to do it, and a space to do it, I don't think I would, just because that's... that's a level of labor that I don't think is doable. Cars come with a certain degree of maintenance... I think we all accept that going in, but you're not wrong to point out that there's a definite skills gap here. I always love to tie it back to economics. Right. Just like I just like I do with food deserts and whatever other gaps we bring up on this on this show. No, absolutely. I was thinking the exact same thing. You know, maybe the the maybe it's not a perfectly overlapping circle because you know, you were you were kind of gently trying to touch on this earlier. I think it's almost the inverse where a affluent family is almost less likely to pass along these skills unless they are just totally pleasure based and, and, and it, it becomes a hobby. Um, whereas a less affluent family is maybe more likely to pass on these skills or you know maybe not because the person who would have this knowledge is too tired from working two or three jobs maybe that person is not in the picture at all so i absolutely do i agree with you and i tie this into just a a economic issue the same people who are in the food desert maybe don't have this auto repair knowledge and and need it the most. Yeah. Or, or, or again, there's a point where you have enough money that you don't worry about that. Right. Because you can afford the repairs. Or, fuck, maybe you can afford a new car. Yeah. You know, I, I have, um, really hope Stephanie doesn't get mad at me for mentioning this, but, you know, her car is uh, closing in on 20 years old. So she's a bit of a fixer-upper. And we've talked several times, and it's and it's needed. It's had maintenance issues, and we've talked several times about you know what'll happen, you know when that car eventually goes under. We were expecting it to go under a couple years ago, and honestly, it's lasted this long. And we're like, okay, let's bleed every goddamn year we can sure. out of this thing. But here's the issue: do we we need to change a fan belt? Okay, I can change a fan belt. We need to give it regular tune-ups. I can do that. Change out a battery. I can do that too. I change the oil in the thing all the time. 
New tires. Okay, yeah. I, I got a used tire guy who's cash only down the street from me. His name is Diaz. He's awesome. <laughs> I love him. Like he's uh, like these are things we can do, but eventually, you know, the something's going to happen with the fuel injectors. Something's going to happen with the transmission. Right. Something's going to happen where fixing it is going to be something I can't handle. And at that point, I'm going to have to take it to a mechanic, and the mechanic's going to tell me, okay, it's going to be $1,500 for you to fix this transmission. And at a certain point, i got to sit here with Stephanie and go, all right, well, it's $1,500 for a new transmission, or it's three, four, $5,000 for you know a decent used car, maybe more if we find, definitely more if we finance, uh, let's not sink any more money into this car. And, and that's a conversation that we'll have to have. But the thing is, we're economically in a good enough place that we can have that conversation. Yeah. It's poor. It, it's expensive to be poor. Yeah. If you don't have $5,000 to throw at a replacement car, I'm not saying a new car, a replacement car, then you got to pay that $1,500 for a new transmission just for something else to die on the car a year later. Because it's a 20-year-old car that has 200,000 mi- plus miles and maybe wasn't treated so well before you owned it and you're going to keep sinking more and more money into this thing until it literally just is dead and needs to be cubed and then you're fucked. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I want to I wrap up with this. Uh, my car famously broke down the night of your wedding. <laughs> I love this story. We, I'm pretty sure we've told this story on this very show before. You've mentioned it's a story you will dine out on, and I, I welcome you to continue to do so. Uh, yeah. I didn't know how to drive a stick shipped up a very steep hill, and very steep North Carolina, Leicester, North Carolina. Yeah hill yeah steep enough where if you saw the hill you you would go okay i i understand and i burned a hole through the drive shaft and had to leave my car in north carolina for the week as it got repaired at the local uh a certified mechanic had to then fly back up the following week pay the bill and drive it down and yeah it was around 1500 bucks for that alone and I it, it, it's a hell of a story. I hold no ill will towards you over it, but that was probably around the point where my good old 07 Honda Civic S class, like like something changed in the old girl, and it's just been one thing after another in the years since, and it it it's expensive to be poor. You're absolutely right. So we're. We're looking at getting it replaced. In the meantime, um, I think it's time to start thumbing through some manuals and and learning how to do some stuff uh, on my own. But I highly recommend YouTube. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, YouTube. I honestly, I've YouTubed a ton of maintenance stuff uh, with both of the cars that I take care sure, of. Sure, sure, sure. And there's shit out there. Like, provided you're not trying to fix some super obscure ass random i i can't think of an obscure car right now because i don't know car i know about as much about cars as i know about dogs which on our 
Uh, last episode, I I revealed that I don't even know how big a chow mix is. <laughs> but yeah, like I recommend YouTube. It might be might be the easiest way. Sure, to go. but I mean, like I said, I didn't bring this up. I didn't bring this hate up for my own sake. You know, um, I brought this up for all the other people who have these car issues and can't afford to fix it. And and even having a payment plan isn't really a, a thing that works for them. You know. I say this in jest, but until we get the Sanders Ocasio Cortez ticket and we all live in a socialist paradise, this is going to be a a thing that people have to deal with. And as we are wont to do in this show, I hate that. <laughs> I will I will say two things. One, you know Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is too young to run, right? Ah, damn. <laughs> constitution says 35 that aside i will say to you i miss public transportation all the time sure. when i lived up north even with philadelphia's public transportation which was fucking terrible because there are like nine companies it's not like the new york metro where it's like one metro card gets you in every state no this one you have to do nj transit this one you have to do septa this one you have to do something else that i don't remember the name of and it was god-awful, and I still liked it better than dealing with a car. Sure, man. I spent a summer in New York so, and took the subway and walked everywhere and, and thought that was just fine. Yeah. Anyway. What are you going to do, Andrew? Um, that's, what, that's what we get for wanting property. Exactly. <laughs> uh, shall we move to our question, my let's, friend? Let's move to the question. Uh, I, I'm okay. feeling good about it. Okay. Um, you want to read this one? Yeah, I, I dug it up. I'll go ahead and read it. So a month or two ago, my live-in girlfriend of about two and a half years told me that she wanted to go on a break. She has been having issues with her family and had been putting stress on our relationship. She goes to school and waits tables at night, and I have a full-time job. So she had been going out after work for drinks while I was at home because of work the next day. We had a few fights over it, but ultimately I told her I understand why she was doing it and asked her to cut back on it. When she brought up going on a break, she said she felt guilty about how she was treating me and that I just didn't understand what she was going through, so I can't help. I believe her intentions were good, but I did not and still don't want it to be the end of us. We still live together because our lease is only a few months of expiring. We see each other a lot, but don't kiss or anything like that. But other than physically touching, we act the exact same. Usually on weekends we do our own thing with our friends and don't talk much. I'm having trouble trying to decide if I should force the issue of us getting back together or let our lease end and move on. So, LHR, I leave it to you. What should I do? And that is signed, Ted Mosby. And how'd you guys like the shots? I drank all five, bitch. Ted Mosby. Which I believe is our second How I Met Your Mother uh, call sign. I don't think so. We did Doogie Howser. That's right, okay. Which is Neil Patrick Harris, who plays Barney in How I Met Your Mother, but this is Ted Mosby. That's true, you're correct, okay. Whew. A couple things wow, about Ted. this one. Uh, there are a number of things about this one. Do you want to start or shall I? Uh, you go ahead, man. Okay. Okay. Ted Mosby. I, as I often do with uh, relationship questions, and you were you were kind enough to be pretty detailed in yours, but as I often do, I wonder a little bit about the phrasing of some of the things you mention in here. For instance, y'all did 
break up, it sounds. It says you went on a break. Now, I've never been on a break in a relationship, but I understand that it means different things to different people. And I wonder a lot about what was communicated in one degree or another about this so-called break. Like, is this the kind of... This is clearly the kind of break where you don't physically interact with the same degree of intimacy that you had when you were dating. You're, you're clear about that. Um, is this the kind of break where you two agreed to potentially seeing other people? Is this the kind of break where if you had finances mixed up other than this lease situation, you break those off? Is this the kind of break where you don't tell your friends and family that you're on a break or you do tell your friends and family that you're on a break? Uh, I'm curious about the terms of a lot of this because y'all are still living together and that complicates everything. I'm sorry. I don't care if you do your own things on the weekend or if you, quote, act if you if you say that you're quote acting pretty much the same except for quote not kissing or anything that sounds muddy and that sounds emotionally fucked up not fucked up in that i think that you're you know you guys are acting improperly or anything but fucked up in that this sounds emotionally confusing as yeah. hell there's no distance there's no proper distance there's no way for you to separate yourself in this this to me is a communication issue if y'all need to break up, break up. You can do that. And you can even get back together. I, th there are so many, so many relationships I'm familiar with that end up working out that way. You're like, talk to your friends who are married. Talk to your family who are married. See how many of them broke up at one point or another. That kind of thing does happen. But this kind of weird, okay, we're going on a break. We're not gonna be dating but we still live together because of our lease situation I, I say move out or break up or get back together and if it's getting back together is not a two-way thing i understand you've invested two and a half years into this relationship but this is not going well right now and these are not the seeds of a relationship that can go well like not if you're emotionally invested in a relationship but you don't know where the other person stands not where break is a numinous weird term that just says you separate your time, kind of. Your physical intimacy has this boundary, but your time with one another on weekdays doesn't. You're clearly still emotionally invested in this. I worry about your mental well-being, Ted Mosby. Uh, which is a sentence I have said before, but now I'm directing it specifically towards you. I worry about your mental well-being, Ted Mosby, <laughs> in this particular relationship situation you're in. So you, you're asking us what you should do. I say get clarity, get boundaries, figure out the terms of this thing. And I really do think that if the terms of this thing involve the two of you not being in an actual relationship, one of you should move out. And if, if, if it comes to it, you should be willing for it to be you. I understand economics can be shitty. We just did a whole thing on economics being shitty. But if that involves finding somebody to take over your lease or you double paying rent, if that's something you can afford or, or just finding some other means, 
put in that effort because this is not going well. So that's where I'm starting. Andy? Yeah, Ted, hey bud. Um I I hope this isn't something you weren't wanting to hear, but you know, you you've asked for our honest if unqualified opinion and we're going to give it to you. Uh I I landed the same close to the same place Alex did, but I got there a couple different ways. You specifically used the term us getting back together, which informs me that this is you're calling this a break because you have to see each other every day and i wonder if you guys hadn't already been living together if this would have been an actual break up but even besides that there's something i wanted to highlight on you're talking about how your situations are different she's a student and works nights you have a full-time job and she is a bit more social than you are at least able if not able and willing at least not able to be right now and you asked if she could cut back on it Mm. now y'all do you and i i i'm speaking to everyone here and i'm not trying to dictate that you can't be in a relationship if you have different levels of social butterflyness but that is a very tenuous, very contentious, very bad fight waiting to happen where she wants to go out with her friends or go do something social. And again, maybe you're willing, but you are not able. You can't. And that bothers you enough that you have to talk to her about it. I I, I see this relationship, if it continues, eventually going to a marriage because I kind of feel that's the culmination of most relationships. But even if it's just a very, very, very long relationship living together and being on such different social, but I don't mean social like that social levels is going to cause an issue sounding like it already is a little bit, you know, beyond that, you know, it sounds like you've tried to talk a little bit and you were met with the, you just don't understand And if she's not willing to clarify that point, I take that as a a sign that she is trying to not have this be a thing you help with, for better or worse. You know, I've gotten into plenty of fights with my now wife. I've been broken up with for the afternoon. Wait, wait, wait. Broken up with for the afternoon? Like, like we we would get into bad fights and we we would split up but within usually within 24 hours that split up would be undone that's what i am describing here so not really split up just having a fight where we say we're going to split up and then we don't <laughs> uh, okay please continue <laughs> oh that hurt my heart it was a long time uh, ago <laughs> continue <laughs> anyway i i say this to say that you know true love is true love if y'all love each other You'll find a way to make it work, but you're asking us what you should do. Should I force the issue of us getting back together or let our lease end and move on? And there are enough warning signs, or not warning signs, but there are enough things that are dicey about this where I really wonder if you're not going to have a better opportunity to 
have a break with have a clean break with this person you know you get out of your lease you don't live together anymore you go your separate ways you see where you're both at in in three months and i i wonder if whether you get back together or not if that might be the best thing you know i've got a very very dear friend and i'm not going to say your name but i know you're listening and i love you and this dear friend of mine was with a guy for three years and they never called it a relationship it was a relationship and they did everything a relationship entails but they never called it a relationship and it ended badly multiple times and i only tell this i only tell this person's story to illuminate to you how this could turn on you so you know you're asking me my honest opinion is let the lease run out and see what happens if you want to fight fight if you if you want to, if not fight but if you want to fight for the relationship and get the clarity alex is talking about i totally support you in that and i think that's probably something you should do either way but to answer your exact question that you have left in my hands i wonder if you're not better off coming back to this in a couple of months and seeing if some distance changed something in one or both of you yeah i think i i'm with you man honestly i ted you i think the best route and andy andy summed it up nicely the best route is talk first figure out exactly what this relationship is what the situation is you know you mentioned your girlfriend wanted this break because she quote felt guilty about how she was treating you and that you just didn't understand what she was going through so you can't help that doesn't strike me as the action of a person who knows exactly what she wants and it's okay for her not to know exactly what she wants that's all right but that doesn't change that you should ask. So talk to her. It might be that this is just one or several hard, very shitty conversations away from being more or less rectified in the two of you together. Or vice versa, uh, several, one or several bad, not productive conversations away from you realizing that you need to walk away and... Andy, I know you believe in true love. I don't. I don't believe there's such a thing as a soulmate. I don't believe that there's such a thing as a person that's meant for you. I believe that there's falling in love, mutually falling in love, and then caring enough about another person that you craft a relationship and a life together, and sometimes you lean on each other. Sometimes one of you leans on the other a little more than than you would otherwise but you compromise and you work together and you talk and you communicate and you fight and you fight productively and then you have good moments and you have bad moments and you make it work and if this relationship can't work because one person is going through something that might not even be her fault 
there's nothing wrong with walking away from yeah. Them. Don't you know your yeah. your Robin so. is out there. Maybe it's her. <laughs> Maybe it's not. She's still in college or or school. You you say. I mean, school. I, I assume college, but might be graduate school. Yeah. Might be right. Doctorate. Right. Who knows? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. That can all that can often be a fluid and transformative time for people. I think you're going to be okay if you cut the cord here and and you don't have to be out of each other's lives, but you know, have a conversation and get some more clarity of the situation and maybe actually break up and take some time and not see each other every day and not be in this nebulous oh, she's still my girlfriend in every way, except we don't really have physical intimacy. You know, it it it, it doesn't have to be a scary, awful thing. It can be a good thing in disguise, and I don't think you're going to get a better opportunity if you re-up your lease. So, yeah. again, man, I, I, you posed the question to us, and I hope that you were prepared for honest takes on it and that this isn't just what you absolutely didn't want to hear but i have optimism i have faith definitely talk to her don't just don't don't decide that it's over without having that conversation but have that conversation and then make the decision and if you decide it should be over that's okay yep i think that's a great spot to sum up andy there you go well done so this has been love hate relationship and a reminder if you have a relationship problem and that can be the kind of relationship problem we just delved into or it can be something with a friend a co-worker a a a, a pet a, a anything that you have a relationship with maybe not an inanimate object but you get the point uh, i mean we're open to it <laughs> we're open-minded we're open-minded here, here. And you can send those questions to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, and we would also love it if you reviewed us on any or all of those platforms. We do accept five star reviews, we accept four star reviews. We accept uh, three-star reviews that are really super funny, and if it's less than that, uh, DM us and we'll talk. And you know, maybe maybe we can have some exchanges. We're exactly. open to feedback. <laughs> uh, you can you can also tweet us at lhrpod. That's l h r p o d with your questions, your comments, uh, your DMs, uh, telling us how shitty we are, and or requesting dick pics. Uh, which you won't get, but we'll thank you kindly for the interest. Uh, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. Or just, uh, you know, listen to whatever nonsense we happen to be spouting off. We're pretty good at that. I've been spouting more nonsense lately. Right. It's been fun. Uh, if you want to see our nonsense on a personal level, you can follow me, Andy Bowell, at JovoCop2113 on Twitter. And I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z. I pronounce that weird on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, thank you for listening, everyone. I'm going to bed momentarily. <laughs> it's almost 9 p.m. Uh, we love you all. And uh, as always, please tell your enemies. <laughs>